Hello, and welcome to the program. This is episode 10 of For All Time. My name is Don Johnson, and uh, let's get right into it. I'm going to start with an article from today's Wall Street Journal, Thursday, January 27th, 2022. It is 3.27 p.m. Mattel wins Disney Princess toy deal. This is by Paul Ziobrio. Yeah, let's give him credit. Paul Ziobro. Cinderella, Elsa, and their friends are moving back in with Barbie. Mattel Inc. has won the license to produce toys based on Walt Disney Company's princess lineup and from the most recent blockbuster Frozen franchise, wresting the properties back from its rival Hasbro Inc., according to Mattel executives. The deal reunites with characters... Uh, the characters of the previous home, Mattel lost the license to Hasbro in 2016, a financial and symbolic setback precipitated by a period of four chief executive officers at Mattel compounding challenges as they try to fill the $440 million hole from losing the business. Much has changed since then. Mattel CEO Inan Kreese, who joined in 2018, has stabilized operations with over $1 billion in cut costs, overhauled leadership, revived key brands such as Barbie, and rebuilt relationships with Hollywood Studios. Since the day Disney... Let's see. Since the day Disney properties walked away, Mattel executives vowed to win them back. It was an important priority, and it's something we worked hard to win, Mr. Kreese said. Mattel showed it could manage evergreen brands that aren't dependent on big movies, he said. Mattel will start selling new Disney toys in 2023, and the business will soon be managed by the same group that has overseen Barbie's comeback. Financial terms of the deal weren't disclosed. For Hasbro, the change comes as the maker of Nerf guns and Monopoly games is making the transition to a new CEO following the death of its longtime leader, Brian Goldner, last year. Under his watch, Hasbro surpassed Mattel in annual sales and made an unsuccessful approach to take over its rival. Hasbro declined to comment on losing the Disney Princess and the Frozen line, but said that it renewed its Star Wars license recently and will soon start making Indiana Jones toys too. Both are properties of Lucasfilm, which is owned by Disney. Shares of Mattel jumped 4%, Hasbro fell about 6%. Makes sense. Mattel's loss of the Disney license originally represented a high-profile fracturing of a relationship between one of the largest toy manufacturers and one of the most powerful companies in entertainment. It was a rare dust-up between companies whose founders worked together since the 1950s when Mattel advertised toys during the Mickey Mouse Club show. In the early 2010s, Barbie was floundering with sales dropping for several years. Uh, Let's see... Mattel devoted more resources in shoring up its marquee property, Disney's princess dolls, meanwhile were managed by a separate team in a competing unit within the business. Then in 2013, Mattel came up with this toy line, Ever After High, which featured the doll based on the children, which featured dolls based on the children of classic fairy tale characters, including Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White. That flew too close to the Disney princess orbit. The following year, Disney notified Mattel that if it was going to Hasbro, um, then it was going to Hasbro. Mattel no longer sells the Ever After High toys. 
Losing the franchise was not only a financial challenge for us, but a really emotional one, said Mattel President and Chief Operating Officer Richard Dickinson. Uh, oh, Richard Dixon. Dick Dixon, who rejoined Mattel for a second stint months before Disney made its decision. It was a wake-up call for Mattel, he said. The fallout started soon after. In early 2015, Mattel fired CEO Brian Stockton. His successor, Chris Sinclair, focused on plugging revenue lost from the license with a range of items without staying power, which added complexity and extra cost to operations. Another CEO, former Google executive Margot... Uh, hmm, let's think about this one. Margot Georgiadis lasted about a year before leaving. Mr. Kreese has brought stability to the top job at Mattel. The former television executive cut one-third of jobs and closed several factories on stem, uh, to stem ongoing losses. He helped to patch up Mattel's fractured relationships with retailers in Hollywood studios. Key brands such as Barbie and Hot Wheels responded to new marketing and items. Fisher-Price has stabilized, too. Though sales are still below their peak for uh, peak of $6.5 billion in 2013, Mattel is on pace for more than $5.3 billion in revenue for 2021, according to analysts up more than 15% from 2020. Projections for net income of $789 million are the highest since 2013. Analysts expect Hasbro to bring in more than $6 billion in 2021 sales, according to FactSet estimates. And a lot of that, this is, this is me editorializing a little bit, but a lot of that is driven by the growth of the D&D brands and the uh, Magic the Gathering brands during the uh, pandemic. I don't know how much of a size of that is, but I know that that's a big source of their growth. Also digital. I know that the uh, the Magic digital game is highly successful um, to, a, to a level that's, you know, one day may uh, make Hasbro consider... Um, either selling off the brand to another company who can handle it if they need a real cash infusion at some point, or um, who knows if the physical aspect hangs around forever. That would be just my guess. But as long as they're selling, they'll keep selling. Um, let's see. The fallout started soon after in early 2015 Brian Stockton a bit of corporate restructuring allowed Mattel to process a stronger case mm -hmm. okay a bit of corporate restructuring allowed Mattel to pro present a stronger case to Disney that the properties would get appropriate attention Mr. Kreese said instead of organizing his businesses around boys girls and infant products Mattel is now structured around categories such as dolls vehicles and action figures the Disney characters will slide into the doll division and be managed by the same group that has overseen Barbie's comeback Barbie has a more open-ended play pattern than the Disney characters whose stories are imprinted on film and in books. Quote, side by side, we know that we can exponentially create more value, more play, and more business by complementing the narrative rather than competing with it, Mr. Dixon said. That's fascinating. I feel like toy executives are learning a little bit from the experimentation and uh, open-ended nature of the kind of play that children experience um, in the world of uh, video games such as Roblox and uh, Minecraft. But I'm sure that there's plenty of research about physical toys as well. The transition raises some questions for Hasbro, which is aimed to use the Disney Princess and Frozen 
license to build up its catalog of toys geared towards girls. But the property faltered a bit under its new owner, people in the industry said. Jim Silver, CEO of TTPM, an online toy review site, estimates that the Disney property is about half as big as it was when it left Mattel, in part because of lack of new content to boost consumer interest in the characters. The Disney deal doesn't reach the levels Hasbro was hoping to achieve, he said. Mr. Silver said Hasbro has other toys for girls on the upswing, including My Little Pony toys boosted by a recent Netflix movie, so the shift of the Disney license might not be as dramatic as it was when Mattel lost it. I think Mattel will do very well with it. This is a quote. I think Mattel will do very well with it, and for Hasbro, I don't think the economics made much sense, he said. UBS analyst Arpine uh, Kosharian estimates the Disney Princess and Frozen license could bring in about $300 million a year um, in a non-movie year. Damn. Well, that's a lot. It's a lot for merchandise for a year when there's not even a movie coming out. What's the year with? Must be over a billion if you have a movie. It could still produce a higher profit margin for Mattel than it did at Hasbro, she said, because Mattel owns much of its doll manufacturing, making it more economical to produce incremental units. Fascinating. There's a look into a industry, an industry, that uh, I bet you don't ever take much time to look into. And you might know a little bit about Hasbro if you know a little bit about you know Dungeons & Dragons and Magic the Gathering, but... Uh, it's an interesting look at like their main bread and butter. Dolls, toys, physical, physical toys. Okay, I think it's all from this. Oh, here's something I didn't even see. I'm just gonna go ahead and read this now uh, out of my own edification. BJ's Wholesale buys distribution centers. BJ's Wholesale Club Holdings Inc is joining the rush of retailers seeking to solve the supply chain snarls by taking greater control of their logistics operations. This is uh, this has been happening. I've been mentioning this on my Twitter quite a bit, but this has been happening for a while in the last, even before the pandemic, actually, but, but since the pandemic uh, extensively, since a lot of commercial real estate has been made available at cut rate prices, um, at least in certain locations. The, the situation is that endpoint retail that is frequented... So let's say, let's say like uh, grocery chains, your Costco, your WalMarts, things like that. They're moving towards a model of having buildings, uh, lo- basically local distribution centers. Imagine your local grocery, like I don't know, Albertsons, Publix, Kroger, something like that. Your King Supers, King's Supers. Um, those all have a local distribution center, a regional distribution center, a a center that, you know, they can get cold items and all their items really uh, funneled through. Um, You know, the the producer creates something, gives it to some kind of distribution center, and ends up in the chain that ends up in the store. Um, And that's the same for all grocery stores. The the situation what they're doing here is, uh, and this isn't specific to BJ's, but uh, grocery stores, Walmarts, and um, other chains have been taking properties that they are about to turn into a store or taking a store that currently exists and removing the customer element from the store entirely. At least 
except for, except for the very retail point. Um, in some cases, they're actually just turning the stores into dis- distribution centers, which I assume that it will eventually turn into probably like pickup centers or something like that, or maybe d- delivery centers. But the idea is that if you were to... Um, if you were to think about the future, right, and that there, if you've seen uh, the Metaverse video that uh, Facebook put out as an example, you know, the uh, the Walmart video, and you, you're virtually walking through a Walmart, grabbing things off the shelf, throwing them into a cart, realistically what you'd be doing is you'd be doing that before you got there, or you'd be doing it at the store, and then they're going to bring you all your items, toss them in your car, or you're just going to drive up with your car, already have it ordered, all the items they are going to toss them in. Now, that will become grocery shopping, essentially. That'll become our modern germ-free, uh, or whatever. That'll be their excuse. That'll be their explanation, but that's how we will shop within, let's say, 15 years. Within 15 years, that'll be a major component of shopping in a way that I'm going to say that like your self-checkout only achieved a little bit of, uh, you know, an annoying level of market intrusion, this will see a full takeover of the market. I think that at some point it will be silly, the idea that we ever even went to a grocery store. It'll be silly that we were allowed to expose ourselves to what was inside and perhaps something that might go into someone else's house. I think that will be a preposterous idea, which is funny to think about now, but I guarantee at some point will be a common thought. That's just fun to ponder. So is this. This is from yesterday's uh, Wall Street Journal. Investors pile into gold for safety. This is by Hardika Singh. One asset holding up through early 2022 market turmoil, gold. Rising geopolitical tensions in Europe and a slide in major U.S. stock indexes has sent investors rushing into the heaven, <laughs> the haven metal. On Friday, they poured a record net $1.6 billion into the SPDR Spider gold shares. Uh, let's see. That's the S&P's. Uh, if you know, do you know what an e- <laughs> do you know what an electronically traded fund is? Uh Imagine a stock, but instead of one company, it's the entire sector. It's all of technology. You took an equal share of all of technology and you made it worth a hundred bucks, let's say, and then you put it on the market and then you let the stock ride the price from there. And the fund is automatically managed by, you know, a group of people and a computer, essentially, who maintain ownership of all the things in the sector and make sure that when the sector goes up, that the value of the stocks rise along with it, etc. So, Let's say um, the Spider Gold shares, I believe, is a fund. Well, it's, it's a it's, it's a sector. It's a sector fund that basically says, okay, on the S and P, the Standard and Poor. Let me back up. <laughs> okay, so let's say you want to invest in gold, and you say to yourself, "Wow, I don't want to physically own gold. That's crazy." However, I want to invest in something that will follow the value of gold up and down. I'm taking that risk, but I know that gold is a safe bet in this scenario that you're pondering. And you're going to say, well, I'm going to buy not $1.6 billion, but I'm going to put $5,000 on uh, this spider for gold shares. Okay, And what you're going to do is you're going to be basically buying a share of every single company listed in a publicly uh, – well, every single company that's listed on the S&P um, – 
that is associated with gold. Now, that doesn't just extend to companies that own gold or gold investment companies. It actually extends to companies that own gold mines, companies that own um, companies that create gold mining equipment. Um, every single company that has anything to do, even the companies that might uh, produce, let's say, I don't know, 30% of this company's revenue is producing some kind of hydraulic fluid that's used for, I don't know, gold mining specifically. Um, it cools down the equipment or something. 30% of that company is going to somehow be represented in this fund. I mean, they're, they're really going to nail it down to everything. Anyway, that's the idea. And that's what you should do if you want to buy gold or silver is go buy a, a sector fund for that instead of buying the gold or silver. There's uh, next to no risk because you don't actually have any valuable objects in your house or wherever you're keeping it secure. And um, the value will ride uh, in a more, the value will ride in a, in a smoother and predictable way aligned with the rise and fall of the precious metal prices. That's just my suggestion. Uh, but let me continue. When individuals buy shares of an ETF backed by physical gold, they are buying a stake in a trust. The ETF tracks the metal's price since the asset held by that trust is metal. Demand for gold climbed after tensions between Russia and Ukraine escalated last week. Investors often flock to page B13 to find the rest of the story. Uh, gold during the geopolitical turbulence, expecting it to hold value even when other assets struggle. Quote, gold thrives on uncertainty, and we've got that by the ladleful, said Rona O'Connell, head of market analysis, EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, at Stone X. She estimates that gold will trade at an average of $1,900 a troy ounce in the second half of 2022. Gold prices have traded in relatively narrow range in 2022, hovering below their November highs of 1870 and 20, a troy ounce, and a 2020 record of 2051.50. Bets the Federal Reserve will act aggressively to curb inflation helped pull the metal back from those levels, reducing the appeal of gold as protection against rising prices. Expectations for rate increases have also sent U.S. government bond yields higher, making them more competitive with gold, which pays no regular income. I'll give my opinion of the situation at the end of this. Um, most actively traded gold futures ended Tuesday up 1080, $10.80, or 0.6% to 1852.50. Analysts said recent declines in stock market also could support gold, with the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite recently wrapping up their worst week since March 2020, which I believe it has recovered since, essentially. Well, the most of the damage has been recovered. Um, everyone seems happy again. Investors have battered other speculative bets, including Bitcoin, which some cryptocurrency enthusiasts have touted as another form of inflation protection. Put a pin in that thought. Gold has reemerged as a safe haven and portfolio tail hedge given uh, repricing and sell-off in equities and crypto assets, said Akash Doshi, head of commodities for North America at City Research. Once again, put a pin in that. One potential new source of pressure for gold prices is this week's Fed meeting, which investors plan to watch closely for clues on the path of investment rate increases, yields on two-year treasury bonds, which typically climb when investors expect tighter central bank policy, have lately risen to their highest levels since February 2020. 
Some investors said expectations for Fed policy tightening were already weighing on gold, helping to push it down to a 3.5% loss in 2021, its largest percentage decline since 2015. Once again, put a pin in that. Gold was the problem child last year. Uh, this is a quote, uh, but it might be the star student of this year, said Robert Minter, director of ETF investment strategy at Aberdeen, A-B-R-D-N, Aberdeen, Aberdeen, which replaces the Aberdeen Standard Physical Gold Shares ETF, which net assets around $2.4 billion as of December 31st. Okay. Uh, I, I believe that gold demand is increasing and de- decreasing right now based on the net regular factors, of course. But I think that, if anything, the values are being exacerbated by the inverse. I think a lot of institutional investors use Bitcoin and gold kind of... Um, I think they flop stored value between them. Not in like a big scale, but enough of a scale to make a difference in the days that... Bitcoin reflexes, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an economist. I know there's one economist who potentially listens to the show, so maybe they can chime in. But uh, if you look, I'm not going to like draw lines on charts, but if you go and you look at the days when crypto takes its biggest hits is the days are the days when you see gold um make appropriate adjustments and they're not like exact but i feel like i feel like uh someone in the institutional world heard the term digital gold so many times in relationship to bitcoin that at some level they felt like that um they can use those interchangeably as if they were a real statement and not just something that someone said once that's all Consider that. Maybe I'm wrong. I accept that. But look at the charts. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, look at this. Awesome. I love this. Um, let's see. FDA's antibody move irks DeSantis. Decision to halt distribution of treatments draws ire. And this is in the local paper. Today's local paper. Um, Governor Ron DeSantis is by Jeffrey Schwears. Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo are condemning Monday's decision by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to halt the distribution of antibody treatments that have become central to the state's COVID-19 response. And DeSantis is even teasing at taking legal action. Despite all previous indications and warnings from the federal government that these drugs don't work against the Omicron variant, DeSantis has made it the main part of the state's response to COVID-19, buckling, bucking the prevailing wisdom of the national medical community. Because of the FDA's decision Monday, appointments for more than 2,000 Floridians to receive this treatment were canceled Tuesday, as the governor, uh, the governor said, and all monoclonal antibody treatment sites have been shut down department of health announced late monday evening that includes the one at the site of the former naples beach hotel at an appearance tuesday morning at a uh, wakula county elementary school to promote literacy desantis lit into the biden administration's decision 
quote, what they choose to do with their time is pull the rug out from under elderly patients and almost all of them have been vaccinated and say, you don't have access to this treatment. The governor told reporters, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's what they choose to do with their time is pull the rug out from under elderly patients and almost all of them have been vaccinated and say, you don't have access to this treatment. None of that makes sense. He added, quote, we're going to fight back. Is there a lawsuit potentially? I don't know. We're going to look. We're going to see what we can do. Meantime, Tuesday, White House Assistant Press Secretary Kevin Munoz responded to Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, who had tweeted earlier that morning that Floridians, quote, access to treatment shouldn't be denied based on the whims of a floundering president, end quote. New quote, we are giving an additional 34,000 treatments that are actually effective against Omicron just this week to Florida, Munoz told the USA Today Network Florida. Floridians, like my family, deserve access to treatments that work against the variant that is over 99% of cases in the state right now. Is the latest salvo in an ongoing feud between the administration and DeSantis, who is up for re-election in November and widely considered after that to be a presidential contender? Ladapo, who came up for his first confirmation hearing before the Florida Senate on Wednesday, said the feds, quote, failed to adequately provide the United States with adequate outpatient treatment options for COVID-19, end quote. When asked about the dispute between DeSantis and Biden at a Tuesday White House briefing, spokesman Jen Psaki said the latest example of some state leaders, quote, advocating for so-called treatments that aren't as effective and can have dangerous side effects injecting disinfectant, promoting pseudoscience, sowing doubt on the effectiveness of vaccines and boosters, and now promoting treatments that don't work, she said. The Food and Drug Administration announced late Monday it was revoking that the emergency youth authorization granted for drugs from Regeneron and Eli Lilly because they are ineffective against the Omicron variant responsible for nearly all new cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. The agency said it could reauthorize their use if they prove effective against other variants. The American Medical Association's president, Gerald E. Hamilton, praised the federal government for, quote, following the scientific evidence and limiting the use of monoclonal antibody treatments to those that are effective against the Omicron variant, end quote. Contrary to DeSantis and Ladapo Hamilton, and limiting the use of those drugs will, quote, help ensure patients receive the best available therapy and encourage physicians to reference the federal COVID-19 treatment guidelines for the latest information recommended on recommended therapies and treatments. Quote, we continue to strongly urge every eligible individual to make sure they are up to date on their COVID-19 vaccinations, including booster doses, he said. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said in a late-night news release that it decided to pause allocations of COVID-19 therapeutics. Bamlan Ivambab. Bamlan Ivimbab and Estev Imbab. Imab. Estevimab. Yeah, there we go. Bamlan Ivimab and Estevimab. Nope. Gonna do it one more time because I've stumbled on these words in the previous thing. I need to know how this is said. Bamlan Ivimab. Bamlan Ivimab. Bamlan Ivimab. Bamlan Ivimab. And Estevimab. 
and let's give it one more and Kossiriv Imbab and Imdevimbab. Imdevimbab. That one I can say. And make sure that if Americans fall ill with COVID-19, that, quote, they get a treatment that actually works. Hopefully it works better than me pronouncing those words. Both Regeneron and Eli Lilly say their monoclonal treatments don't work against Omicron, confirmed by several independent studies. Additionally, the National Institutes of Health has recommended it against those products, an HHS spokesman said. As such, to ensure people getting these treatments uh, against Omicron, HHS is not including Regeneron and Lilly monoclonal antibody treatments in today's allocations, the agency spokesman said. The agency said it will continue to make other treatments available that do work against Omicron, including two antiviral pills from Pfizer and Merck recently approved by the FDA for emergency use, a monoclonal antibody treatment from GlaxoSmithKline, and a pre-exposure therapy from AstraZeneca for those compromised immune systems. Those treatments are in short supply, as is the one antibody treatment, Sotravimab, that actually works against Omicron. The FDA also recently authorized commercially available remdesivir for outpatient COVID-19 treatment, the HHS said. It will have about 4 million doses available in January. We encourage states and providers to continue offering effective treatments to Americans who get sick with COVID-19, and HHS remains committed to providing to these states at no cost, the spokesman said. Uh, James Call contributed. Okay. Yes. So basically, the situation here is that, well, you heard it. Florida's government is convinced that uh, they're doctors and can decide what works and doesn't based on their whims, essentially, and that's it, and their feelings. And uh, we have to live with the results. In uh, other good news in Florida on that front, uh, Publix is distributing uh, COVID pills exclusively in Florida. I believe some other stores have them. But right now, only, I think, about eight or nine stores in Florida, all pu- mostly Publixes, have uh, an anti-COVID pill is currently only being made available for those who are very ill or have a uh, previous illness. Okay. Let's see. Here's something fun. UK police investigating parties at Downing Street. I heard this on the the BBC News Hour a few days ago, and I had to look into this because it was just so entertaining. So entertaining for all of us. Let's see here. All right. The British police have opened, this is by Mark Landler and Stephen Castle, UK police investigating parties on Downing Street. This is in the New York Times yesterday's A7, London. The British police have opened an investigation into parties held at 10 Downing Street and other government offices during the coronavirus lockdown, an ominous development for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is trying to stave off a career-threatening challenge to his leadership over the handling of the scandal. The commissioner of the Metropolitan Police... Cressida Dick, 
confirmed Tuesday that the police are investigating, quote, a number of events that took place at Downing Street and Whitehall in the last two years in relation to the potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations. She declined to elaborate. The disclosure could delay publication of the most serious findings of another crucial investigation, which is being led by a senior civil servant, Sue Gray. Mr. Johnson has appealed to conservative lawmakers and the public to withhold judgment until the release of that report. It remained unclear when and uh, when and in what form Mr. Uh, Ms. Gray's report would be published, though it could still emerge in the coming days. Downing Street said Tuesday that discussions were underway between Ms. Gray's team and the police on what could be made public. The involvement of the police ra- uh, raises the possibility that there were serious violations of lockdown rules. Police officers who guard the Downing Street complex are in a particularly good position to monitor the comings and goings of staff members. Among the more sensational disclosures was that a junior aide was dispatched to a nearby store with an empty suitcase to fill with wine bottles. (laughs) Oh, buddy. The steady drip of reports about the social gatherings most recently news that Mr. Johnson's wife, Carrie Johnson, and staff members threw him a surprise birthday party in June 2020 when such gatherings were strictly forbidden, has seriously damaged the Prime Minister's position with the public and its own party. I added the um, I editorialized there. I said, when gatherings were strictly uh, forbidden, and it says, were forbidden. My brain literally made me do that. An unknown number of conservative lawmakers have submitted confidential letters calling for a vote of confidence, a vote of no confidence in the prime minister. If the number of letters exceeds 54, Mr. Johnson would face such a vote where analysts said, uh, which analysts said would cripple his leadership even if he managed to win a majority of the votes. Uh, quote, I welcome the Met's decision to conduct its own investigation because I believe this will help to give the public the clarity it needs and help draw a line under the matters, Mr. Johnson said in Parliament on Tuesday, uh, his hair looking ever as shit. His official spokesman said that the Prime Minister did not believe he had broken the law. No mention of the police investigation was made during a cabinet meeting on Tuesday morning, although Mr. Johnson was informed about it before the meeting. While the latest development could give Mr. Johnson a space to breathe as police investigation unfolds, it banishes any hope that Ms. Gray's investigations would clear Downing Street of misbehavior and allow it to quickly move beyond the scandal. It raises the prospect that Ms. Gray has uncovered information not in the public domain and the possible delay caused by the police investigation means that more leaks could emerge to keep the issue out of the news agenda. Oh, more leaks could emerge to keep the issue at the top of the news agenda. Fun. Were Mr. Johnson to be questioned himself by police, it would not be the first time for a prime minister in recent decades. In 2006 and 7, towards the end of his tenure as prime minister, Tony Blair was questioned twice by the police over allegations that honors had been given to business leaders in exchange for donations. When was the last time a president or prime minister hadn't done that? Jonathan Powell, who served as chief of staff to Mr. Blair, said that investigation was an extreme distraction for the prime minister and his government, even though prosecutors ultimately decided not to bring any charges against anyone. Similarly, the crisis over parties in Downing Street, which has dominated the news for nearly two months now, looks likely to paralyze the government and continue dragging down the conservative party in the polls for a while longer. Mr. Johnson has struggled to focus on the mounting crisis in the Ukraine, ceding the stage until recently to his defense secretary, Ben Wallace, who has been the most most vocal British official in pushing back on Russia's provocations. On Tuesday, after acknowledging the uh, the police investigation, Mr. Johnson delivered a robust statement on Ukraine, uh, promising that Britain and its allies would impose 
coordinated and severe sanctions, heavier than anything we have done before against Russia, end quote, if President Vladimir V. Putin invaded Ukraine. The main question, Mr. Johnson, uh, for Mr. Johnson now is whether his own lawmakers are willing to wait for the outcome of the police investigation or whether the latest twist will prompt enough of them to write formal letters of protest to trigger a no-confidence motion. For those unaware of the UK political system, that is how you basically process a new president. A president, or, you know, a functional president, their prime minister, is elected not on a regular schedule, but essentially over a period of time, once that vote is held, it triggers a new presidential election in the parlance of my own land. Um, on Tuesday, one conservative member of parliament, Michael Fabricant, wrote on Twitter that he was pleased by the development uh, rather better than to have a professional investigation than a trial by social and mainstream media, <laughs> he said. Fun. In parliament on Tuesday, several other lawmakers also defended him. Gavin Barwell, who is a chief of staff to the former Prime Minister Theresa May wrote on Twitter, however, that Mr. Johnson's only hope of getting through this has been to play for time and hope the public angers public's anger fades. He added that while the investigations had both downsides and upsides for Mr. Johnson, it was uniformly bad news for the Conservative Party. Quote, the longer the scandal drags on, he wrote, the greater the risk that it damages not just the Prime Minister's representation represent his reputation, but the party's. Yeah, well, I don't know how much the country or the prime minister has to worry about um, this scandal. I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's not going to really be that much of a big deal based on what's coming down the pipe. Japanese company plans lunar landing. Uh, yes, I am going to read this. Japanese company plans lunar landing by Joey Roulette. A Japanese company is pushing ahead with plans to launch a private moon lander in the end of 2022, a year packed with other moonshot ambitions and rehearsals that could foretell how soon humans get back to the lunar surface. If the plans hold, the company uh, iSpace, which is based in Tokyo, would accomplish the first intact landing by a Japanese spacecraft on the moon. And, the and by the time it arrives, it may find other new visitors this year from Russia and the United States. U2 Two, as spelt Y-U-T-U hyphen two, a Chinese rover is currently the lone robotic uh, is currently the lone robotic mission on the moon. Yeah, it's driving around. There's pictures of it. If you go visit its Twitter page, you can see all what it's up to. It's fantastic. Let's see. Other missions in 2022 plan to orbit the moon, particularly the NASA Artemis 1 mission, a crucial uncrewed test of the American hardware that is to carry astronauts back to the moon. South Korea could also launch its first lunar orbiter this year. But other countries that had hoped to make it to the moon in 2022 have fallen behind. India was planning to make its second robotic moon mission uh, this year, but its Chandrayaan-3 mission was delayed to mid-2023, said K. Sivan, who completed this term as chairman of the country's space agency last month. Russia, on the other hand, remains confident that its Luna 25 lander will lift off this summer. The M1 moon lander, built by iSpace, is the size of a small hot tub. It is in the final stages of assembly in Germany at the facilities of the Ariane Group, the company's European partner, which built the rocket that recently launched the James Webb Space Telescope. If structural tests go as planned in April, 
M1 will be shipped to NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida for a launch on one of the SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets. Quote, as of today, the specific launch date is scheduled to be, at the earliest, the end of 2022. Takeshi Hakamata, iSpace's founder and chief executive, said in a news conference in Japan on Tuesday. The moon landing would come three or four months later as the mission uses a lengthy lunar trajectory to save fuel and maximize the amount of cargo the M1 lander can carry along. Several years ago, iSpace was a finalist in the George Lunar X Prize, uh, the Google, <laughs> the Google Lunar X Prize, a contest that ended in 2018 with no winners of a $20 million prize that had been meant to stimulate private moon missions. Although it did not win the Google Prize, the company raised over $90 million in 2017 and sees a healthy business in the future carrying payloads to the moon's surface for governments, research institutions, and private companies. Its ambitious timeline anticipates more than 10 moon landings in the coming years among a rush of space firms that envisage uh, mining the moon with robots for precious resources like iron and silicon that could be returned to Earth or used to expand structures on the lunar surface. The customers for iSpace's first moon landing include Japan's space agency, JAXA, which aims to test out a small rover that can change shapes for varying terrain, and the space program of the United Arab Emirates, which is sending its first lunar rover, a four-wheeled robot called Rashid. Nations and private companies have set their sights on the moon in recent years for its potential to serve as a staging ground for spacecraft and other technologies that could be used for future missions to Mars. The Artemis program is heavily leaning on private companies to slash the cost of targeting, its moon, uh, targeting the moon and hopes to stimulate a commercial market for various lunar services. Although iSpace, M, iSpace's M1 mission is primarily meant to demonstrate, the operation, to demonstrate operations on the moon, the company's next mission, M2, will carry its own, quote, micro-rover that is built to drive around the surface and study lunar terrain. That mission is now scheduled for 2024. Two American companies are also aiming for the moon before year's end, Astrobotic, a space robotics firm in Pittsburgh, and Intuitive Machines of Houston. Both firms are building their spacecraft with backing from the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, the CLP. I have a feeling that'll be a big part of our future. Uh, or it's actually the CLPS, CLPS, a NASA program. All right. So that's fun information for all of us. We're, uh, we're going to go into the moon this year a bunch of times. And it's not even a big deal. No one's talking about it because we have 15 million other things in our mind. You know, it's pretty wild. Here's a little something to lift up your spirits. Forecast dims for U.S., China, and world. And this is from uh, Wednesday's Times by Patricia Cohen. Slow down the world's two biggest economies, the United States and China, are likely to be larger than expected this year, dragging down output for every continent and reducing global growth, a new report warned on Tuesday. Higher inflation, supply chain choke points, and COVID-related shutdowns and worker shortages continue to afflict rich and poor nations, and the International Monetary Fund, uh, the International Monetary Fund, wrote in its latest World Economic Report, Quote, the global economy enters 2022 in a weaker position than previously expected, the fund said, in reducing the fund. <laughs> uh, many thousands of researchers said in reducing its estimated global growth rate to 4.4% from the 4.9% it projected just three months ago. The fund said 
the Federal Reserve Bank's tighter monetary policy and the failure of the Biden administration's sweeping $2.2 trillion infrastructure and social policy package were among the reasons it reduced its U.S. growth forecast by 1.2 percentage points to 4%. In China, which has powered much of the world's growth in recent years, uh, the IMF pointed to the collapse of the real estate sector and the zero-COVID policy that has restricted travel, shut businesses, and reduced consumption. The report reduced the country's growth forecast by 0.8 percentage points to 4.8%. The fund emphasized that the forecast was subject to a high level of uncertainty about the course of COVID, the prospects of climate-related natural disasters, supply chain disruptions, and rising political tensions, particularly around Ukraine. With the pandemic entering its third year, a note of... Oh, I'm going to have to continue to B3... Moving the microphone. Uh, let's see. With the pandemic entering its third year, a note of pessimism underlay the report. Quote, risks overall are to the downside. Jita Gopinath, the first, well, we'll just say that's her name, the first managing deputy director said, um, global economic losses related to the pandemic will total $13.8 trillion by the end of 2024, Ms. Gopinath estimated. The dimmed economic prospects come at a time when, government have less, when governments have less room to maneuver in how they spend their money. Debt levels have soared over the past two years as countries have struggled with the health crisis caused by the pandemic and funneled aid to their citizens. Public spending is unlikely to reach the same levels in the future. The troubling rise in inflation that has doubled heating costs in much of Europe and made food less affordable in places like sub-Saharan Africa and Brazil has also lasted longer than anticipated. The pandemic has changed the way people in many parts of the world spend their money, shifting funds that might have been used from, for dining, travel, and entertainment to goods they can play with, sit on, or customize at home. I said customize, but it said consume. But, uh, yeah. Consumer goods. Uh, that increased demand, combined with persistent difficulties in moving goods from one city to, or continent to another, skyrocketing energy prices, skyrocketing energy prices, and labor shortages have driven up costs. Some of those pressures are expected to wane towards the end of the year, but not everywhere. In the United States, the story is different. The fund noted. The exit of so many people from their jobs has created more persistent labor shortages and driven up wages so much more than in other countries. America's high level of spending has also created some of the worst supply chain disruptions. The U.S. Federal Reserve has made clear that its primary focus has shifted from stimulating the economy during the pandemic to fighting inflation. The bank, which is set to release its next policy statement on Wednesday, is raising interest rates and reeling in its purchases of bonds that ensured money would continue to flow through the economy. Other central banks, including those in Mexico and Brazil, are taking similar actions. The strategy is to discourage people from borrowing money to buy a car or invest in a business and ratchet back demand for products that are in short supply. Creeping interest rates, though, risk not only slowing economic growth, uh, but burdening poorer nations with even bigger debts into the future. Quote, if interest rates rise more sharply, then that puts more strain on vulnerable developing countries, which have most of their debt in dollars. 
said Creon Butler, research director at Chattingham House, a London research organization. So you know you can trust them. That means governments must use scarce resources to repay bulging loans instead of adding hospital beds or feeding hungry children. The slowdown in China, which is both a major supplier and buyer of goods traded with other countries, is also setting off reverb. <laughs> can try that again. The slowdown in China, which is both a major supplier and buy- a supplier and buyer of goods traded with other countries, is also setting off reverberations around the world. The once exuberant real estate market has plunged. The government has imposed the world's most stringent restrictions and lockdowns to contain COVID and unexpected power outages have further hindered industrial production. Growth in the euro area was revised down 0.4 percentage points to 3.9%, but for some countries, the drop was much steeper. Clogs in the supply chain, especially those affecting the auto industry, prompted the IMF to estimate that growth in Germany, the largest economy in Europe, would decline by 0.8 percentage points, twice as much as the average of all the other countries that use the euro. COVID continues to maintain its grip, and the threat of a new variant remains, but the fund expects severe illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths to drop to low levels by the end of the year. And we know they get their data from the most cutthroat, ruthless people on the planet, so I'm sure that, hey, maybe it's right. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a global conflict by the end of the year. Who knows? Klaus Weisten, the chief Eurozone economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, said the impact of his latest surge had not been as devastating. We're seeing evidence that Omicron is holding back economic activity, but nowhere near the same extent as the virus did before. End quote. Although the fund raised its growth expectations for 2023, it emphasized that the small improvement would be insufficient to counteract the slowdown in 2022. Ms. Gopinath of the IMF emphasized, however, difficult the recovery had been in wealthier nations. Emerging economies had been hit the hardest with weak growth and low vaccination rates. With 70 million people more uh, living in extreme poverty than before the pandemic, the fund called for more international cooperation to work out the debt relief, uh, debt relief for struggling nations, as well as ec- more equitable distribution of COVID vaccines, tests and treatments. Meanwhile, here's an article right below it. Microsoft profits rise 21%, beating Wall Street predictions by Karen Weissey. Microsoft announced record profits and sales on Tuesday, despite investor fears that the pandemic-fueled tech boom may be over. The first of the largest tech companies to report earnings for the three months ending in December, Microsoft said it had $51.7 billion in sales, up 20% from a year earlier, and profit rose 21% to $18.8 billion. The company saw particularly strong growth in its cloud services while locking up long-term customer deals. Although it's Wall St- it beat Wall Street expectations, the company's shares were down almost 5% in aftermarket trading, but redound- rebounded later in the day. The drop was most likely caused by a jittery stock market and some results that fell short for bullish investors. In a call with investors, executives shared an optimistic outlook for the next quarter, setting Microsoft's share price higher. Satya Nadella, Microsoft's chief executive, said the demand for services was still coming. Coming out of the pandemic, we are seeing actually a lot of constraints in the economy, and the only resources that can help drive productivity while keeping costs down is digital tech, he said. Microsoft had $125 billion in cash, almost $70 billion of which it hopes to spend on buying 
the video game powerhouse Activision in a big deal announced this month. Bank of America analysis calls the purchase a, quote, savvy maneuver and a, quote, strategic financial positive, which could accelerate Microsoft's gaming business across numerous platforms, end quote. And I will say that my uh, very well-informed opinion on that is that they are extremely accurate, and I expect Microsoft to dominate the video game industry within three to five years. Sales of Microsoft's cloud offerings to commercial customers, which includes Office 365 subscriptions and Azure, its cloud computing platform, grew 32% to 200, excuse me, to $22.1 billion. Revenue is poised to grow further as price increases for Office 365, which included Word and the Teams communications app, go into effect in March. The price increases could produce $5 billion in extra revenue this year, according to the uh, Webush Securities. Despite chip shortages that limited the supply of its new Xbox console during the holidays, the company's gaming business grew more than 8%, part of its personal computing segment, which grew 15% to $17.5 billion. So there you go. A company, uh, you can see now Windows and its PC market is virtually non-existent in the grand scheme of Microsoft's financial operations. It's very, very little to nothing of its actual uh, organization. The so-called, I mean... Actually, if you look at this, personal the personal computing segment, they're going to pay more for Activision than they made on their personal uh, computing segment. The so-called great resignation among workers also boosted LinkedIn, the professional social network, which Microsoft owns, which saw revenue increase 37%. And we talked about a Microsoft LinkedIn acquisition recently on the podcast. I believe that was only like uh, 20-something billion dollars. No, it was less than that. I think it was like $8 billion. Amazing. Worked out well for them. Here's something fun. <clears throat> it's recovering. It's the, the, the New York Post wanted to quote something that I thought was particularly funny in the New York Times article that I read on the podcast. I'm sure they found it on their own, but I'm just going to repeat it for everyone because it goes without saying. This is one of the best quotes I've ever heard. Yikes, G-Man is kink in Fed's armor. <laughs> the Times ran a curious article on the alleged plot to kidnap Michigan gover- Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The twist involves the defense charges that FBI agents and informants were driving the plot, and the paper conceded, quote, the prosecution will have to build its case without some of the FBI agents who were central to the investigation. Hmm, it cites this example. Quote, after the suspects were arrested, Agent Robert J. Trask II was the main government witness <laughs> taking to the stand during the first court hearings to describe the entire scenario. Hmm. Normal so far. I'm going to continue. The FBI, uh, quote, the FBI fired him in July after he was arrested and charged with beating his wife during an argument over an orgy that the two had attended at a hotel in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In pleading no contest last December, Mr. Trask said he could not remember that night. <laughs> That's the end of the story. That's the whole story. Just wanted to include that. Okay. All right. I'm going to save these magazine articles. Read something here from the allure of immortality. 
This is a book about Cyrus Teed and uh, his, his people. Okay. Our Cosmic Egg. Teed knew that the world was hollow, but he wanted to prove it. The facts were these, he said. Earth is an enclosed sphere that contains the entire universe, and there is nothing beyond it. We live on the inner shell, looking in on everything. Uh, everything God has created, rather than out into the infinite, unknowable space. This was central to a Christianity who had held that the cosmos is unknowable and that we should have a special place in it, at its boundary, to be exact, as opposed to being in insignificant specks in a vast mystery. Teed's proof for this was simple and comforting. God would not create a world we couldn't understand. To be a Koreshian and to know that we live inside is to know God, he said. Quote, to believe in the earth's convexity is to deny him in all his works, Teed wrote. Therefore, those who have accepted Copernicus's ideas suffered under a dangerous delusion. Teed lectured about how the hollow earth um, excuse me. Teed lectured about the hollow earth and spoke to reporters, but no one took him seriously. A handful of newspaper stories did explain the theory and include illustrations of how it worked, but mostly was met with derision. One news brief read, possibly Dr. Teed does his thinking with a hollow skull. It was another bit of entertainment for the public, but unlike the accusations of swindling people and stealing wives, the earth belief didn't impact anyone, so readers were only mildly curious. Most troubling to Teed, as reflected in his writing, was that scientists didn't deign to respond to his idea. So for all of those reasons, he was driven to produce hard evidence, and in doing so, he would revolutionize the world of science and everyone would have to listen. Or so this was his belief. To back up other facets of his religion, he had used science, and he would do the same with this, only better. His theories, like the brain as a battery and the invisible life forces, relied on what many people called pseudoscience. But to provide, uh, excuse me, to prove his Earth theory, Teed planned to use physics. A particular question in Isaiah confirmed for him that the world was hollow, measurable, and comprehensible. Quote, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and melted out heaven within the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountain in scales and hills in a balance? The answer, of course, was God, and Teed decided that he should measure the earth as well, or he would shepherd his people to do so. In 1895, in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, there lived a man who believed that the earth was flat. His name was Ulysses Grant Morrow, 31, and he spent all of his spare time investigating his theory, measuring, drawing meticulous charts and diagrams, and keeping careful notes. He had become fascinated with astronomy when he had studied it at school age, uh, as in school at age 14, and as an adult, he, studied a he started a monthly paper about religion and astronomy. He had a day job and worked on his theories on weekends and nights, sometimes all night. His wife, Rosa, said his obsession was her only rival for his affections. Ulysses wore owlish glasses and with thick frames and had a mustache and a Van Dyke goatee. His PhD, as it was said, <laughs> was from Chicago's College of Higher Science. I love to have a PhD where I have to claim where it's from and just have to have people believe me, <laughs> which is where he met Teed, though nothing is known about the institution. <laughs> Okay, so it probably didn't exist. 
He made his living as a shorthand expert and a stenographer. He taught courses on shorthand and business, and for a time was the principal of the Corning School of Shorthand. He also published a pamphlet on phonetic shorthand and offered his services teaching this skill throughout, uh, through the mail. Ulysses was a good writer and a fast typist. Professor Morrow was the first person I ever saw using a typewriter, a correction later wrote, and it seemed impossible that he could hit the keys so fast and know what he was doing. A trademark of his typing was that he always used purple ink, not black. Before he met Teed, Ulysses was a seeker. He followed the teachings of Charles Taze Russell, spelt T-A-Z-E, the middle name, the minister in Pennsylvania who had founded Zion's Watchtower Track Society, the same man Domacler had followed before he met Teed, which of course would lead to the Jehovah's Witnesses organization. In the mid-1890s, Teed visited Allegheny to debate Russell and converted a few of his adherents. By the time Ulysses learned of Teed's concave earth theory, he had poured years into his flat earth pro uh, theorems and didn't want to let them go. But he became infatuated with what Teed called the cellular cosmogony, which I have a copy of right here. <laughs> he tried to integrate their two theories. Teed critiqued Ulysses' experiments in The Flaming Sword, and he must have been persuasive because Ulysses disavowed his flat earth research. Yeah, the Flaming Sword is one of their um, spiritual, uh, what would be the word, scriptures. I'm trying to track that down. And he must have been persuasive because Ulysses decided his... Okay, so this man converted a flat earther to a concave earther. He was successful in that conversion process. Quote, the skeleton I had erected has now crumbled before your cutting arguments. He wrote to Teed. And I am free to examine Koreshian science with my mind void of preconceived opinions. Within a year, he and his wife converted to Koreshianity and led a small community of around 30 in Allegheny holding meetings at their house. So there was an offshoot up in the... Wow. Ulysses became determined to help Teed prove that we live inside. And Teed appointed him as leader of the newly formed Koreshian geodetic staff, giving him the title of astronomer and Geodetist. Geodeticist. Okay. The staff's first project was to tackle the most common question about the concave Earth. If the Earth curves upward, critics asked, why does a ship disappear over the horizon? The Koreshians set out to prove this was a mirage. They gathered opera glasses, a telescope, sketch pads, and various tools, and took a rowboat to the Michigan and Illinois Canal, choosing it because it the water was calm and the boat traffic was light. They drove a stake into the bottom of the canal and placed a target on top, black, white, and red like a bullseye so that they could easily see it from a distance and take measurements against its concentric circles. Once the target was placed, three men rode uh, preciously, uh, excuse me, three men rode precisely three miles. Anchoring their boat, they viewed the disc and saw that all, was, all of it was visible. They rode another two miles and were pleased to see the target full uh, the complete target again. Throughout, they took precise measurements and drew sketches. Then they tested it in the opposite direction, using a white reflective target, this time and rowing five miles. The bottom of the target disappeared. However, they could clearly see, uh, see it through a telescope, which they held at various documented heights above the water. They continued their experiments on a pier at Lake Michigan, where they watched yachts, steamers, schooners, and noticed that, indeed, the vessels appeared to vanish slowly over the bulge of the horizon, which they estimated was 12 miles away. The holes could not be seen with the naked eye 
or with opera glasses, but a telescope with a 50-power lens rendered the ship's hulls clearly visible. Their visual tests were complete and proved that the Earth was concave, they believed. It seems strange, Ulysses wrote, that a matter so easily observed as this should have so long escaped even the most casual observer, or say nothing of the scientist. But science, but science, excuse me, but scientists ignored them. Ulysses and Teed realized that to be taken seriously, they needed to go beyond mere visual tests and use mechanical methods instead, which I've covered previously in the podcast. They are quite arcane and complete nonsense. Because we live inside the Earth, they reasoned, the ground curves upward. By projecting a horizontal line at constant height, Teed and Ulysses could show this upward curve. Their horizontal line would travel a certain distance and meet back up with the ground, whereas if we lived on the outside of the Earth, as almost everyone believed, the line would travel into space indefinitely and never meet up with the surface. Ulysses and Teed had calculated that the Earth was exactly 25,000 miles around, had a diameter of 8,000 miles, and curved upward at a rate of 8 inches per mile. Teed and Ulysses planned to create their horizontal line next to a large body of water so that, in addition to measuring the vertical distance between the line and the land, they can make sight lines from the line out into the water to varying distances. And this was done. They documented this in their book, and they were very specific about ships being seen at certain distances and being incredibly important to them, that they could see the mass of ships at certain distances, and that proved their theory. Like, completely proved it. I don't know how, but they believe that to be proof. Basically, they discovered perspective, and that wigged them out, and then at, from that point forward, they came up with everything that they could to prove that the Earth was, you know, we lived inside a sphere. That's that's the summation. Teed and Ulysses planned to create their horizontal line next to a large body of water. Um, that couldn't be done in Chicago, but Florida was ideal, with the stretches of empty shoreline along the Gulf in its mild weather. Furthermore, the Gulf was part of the ocean, and their visual tests had been on inland waters. They imagined that this was one reason scientists had ignored them. Perhaps, they reasoned, their critics believed that inland waters did not conform to the Earth's contour, though there is no evidence that anyone lodged a complaint like this. Being on the Gulf would eliminate this criticism because, as Ulysses wrote, quote, no sane mind could question that it followed the contour of the Earth. <laughs> no... There's no, I don't even, there's not even context for that. We're, the Corrections learned of a man who owned nearly all of Naples. Okay, I'm just a few miles south of Estero, and he was willing to let them camp on the beach and conduct their experiment. As luck would have it, the man co-owned the Louisville, Kentucky Courier-Journal, and it's likely that T. and Ulysses saw an opportunity for coverage. Funding for the project came from... Bertheldine Boomer's husband, though he was not a Koreshian. Not incidentally, T.D. Ulysses appointed the Boomer's oldest son, Lucius Messenger Boomer, to direct the project, and his name appeared beneath Ulysses on the expedition letterhead, which read, quote, the civil engineering, scientific, and geodetic staff of the Koreshian unity. The plan was in place. Their geodetic team would go to Florida, led by Ulysses Grant Morrow, and measure the curvature of the Earth. really quite something I had no idea that Florida had a history of people coming here to prove wild claims and uh, succeed wildly while doing so and uh, and doesn't matter if the claims are true or not still succeed all, all the same 
but I love it. And I'm going to end on, on this, a little essay from the book that I was reading from last time. This is uh, Hideo Kojima's The Creative Gene. It's just a series of short essays. Some places need to be known by every Japanese person. March 11th, 2011, 2.46 p.m. At mag a magnitude 9.0, the fourth largest ever recorded earthquake struck approximately 24 kilometers below the ocean's surface off the Sanriku coast. More than 14,000 people lost their lives in a tsunami the likes of which had never been experienced before. Another 13,804 remain missing, and some 16,000 people are still living in the evacuation shelters. These numbers are accurate as of April 20th, 2011, 10 a.m. How are we supposed to respond to such an unprecedented disaster? How can we come to grips with the suffering of those who have been robbed of their futures? How should we, the survivors, go on living our lives? It was in the haze of those thoughts that I read Minato Shikawa's Orgel, uh, which means music box. Minato Shukawa uh, is among my favorite authors. He is especially good at writing stories set in Tokyo's working-class areas in the late 50s and early 60s. His style is often called nostalgic horror. Like me, he was born in 1963 and raised in Osaka, and readers of my generation who grew up in Kansai, western Japan, are especially likely to cry while reading his books. To be honest with you, my original plan for this essay was to introduce one of Shikawa's standout short stories, Takabi no Yoru, from Hana Manama, Ippin-san from Ippin-san, or Shori no Koi from Katami Uta. I'm sure all of that made sense to someone uh, who was a fan of Japanese literature. I would have had March 11th not happened. After the earthquake, I was looking up through the heap of books that tumbled from my bookshelves when I happened to find Orgel. Orgel is considerably different from Shikawa's typical nostalgic Showa-era works like Hana Mana. The kanji for person consists of a long line leaning against a shorter line, as if the shorter line is supporting the other with all its might. Even if both are supporting each other, it is not in fair measure. The stronger bosses the weaker, and the weaker spends its entire existence in forced hardship. It's like Hitomi always says, there are winners and there are losers and I'm the son of a loser. That was from a candid internal monologue from the main character, a boy named Hayato, from the opening chapter. Hayato is a fourth-grade elementary student who lives in a dilapidated public apartment building with his mom, Hitomi, who firmly refuses to pay for his overdue school lunch fees. His father was a whistleblower and consequently lost his job, and ultimately his marriage. In front of Hayato, Hitomi openly denigrates his father as a loser, an insidious brand of bullying that is rampant in his classroom and Hayato Im, uh, that him, Hayato himself is complicit in. Absent are Showa-era nostalgia and the admirable virtues that bolstered Japan's rapid post-war growth. This is a story of the cruel reality of Heisei-era Japan, paralyzed having hit the peak of prosperity and stagnating there. I want you to deliver something to my friend who lives in Kagoshima. One day, Tanada, an old man who lives in the apartment complex, asks Hayato to deliver a music box and the only person in the entire world who can hear its music. 
to the only person in the entire world who can hear its music. But the boy uses the 20,000 yen train fare to buy a portable video game system instead. Some time later, the old man is discovered dead, having passed away with no one to notice. Heavy with guilt, Hayato uses his spring break to fulfill his broken promise. Along his journey, adults tell him the following. No matter how terrible the tragedy, many of us must come to bear witness with our own eyes and never forget, else we do the departed in injustice. That accident is not something to be dismissed. As a matter simply of the past, people all over Japan need to witness the place that it happened and etch it into their hearts. My dad used to tell me and my brother it's a parent's duty to take us to see Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Great Hanshin Earthquake, the location of the Amagasaki derailment, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, the the Kairan Peace Museum, and uh, as Hayato meets adults bearing many traumas, his trip to deliver the music box becomes a pilgrimage of what was left behind after the losses of life to disaster, disaster, accident, and war. In time, he realizes what is important in not the division of winners and losers, but to listen attentively to the ties between people and time, of life and death, of strands. Orgel is a coming-of-age story. Hayato grows from being unwilling to listen to the concerns of adults to being able to feel empathy for their sorrows and to hear their timbre. Of Shikawa's works, this is the first I've read that was tied to the bridge of the current Heisei era into the future. In this moment, as we are being tested into the uh, 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 mm. in this moment we are being tested, and the rest of the world is watching to see if Japan can once again pull off a miracle. And in this test, this disaster, what can we do? How will we create bridges into the future? We are being asked to prove our merit. Even if meme can only be heard by one person, each and every one of us should attempt to listen, and then pass it on to the world, just as Tonda trusted Hayato to do. Those connections are another music box, one that has been entrusted to us. That was written in May 2011. I believe the significance of the meditation is really about creation for the sake of creation, and and in taking a journey that doesn't need to be born witness to to have significance I think that all of us should meditate on the purpose of a journey and the purpose of a transition the purpose of what we're doing and evaluate the importance of it to ourselves and whether or not that is enough for us to continue doing everything that we do and I bet you that you'll find that the answer is yes I find that pondering the importance of something typically brings you to realize that you don't really make your own choices, but you're usually okay with the choices that happen. You just don't even realize that they're choices. That's all I have to say for today. Next time we'll read about how uh, terrible Joss Whedon is in New York Magazine, and I'm sure that'll keep us all entertained. And until then, I bid you farewell and... um, yeah, go ahead and call 505-557-7932 if you made it this far on the podcast. Don't want you to think about, I don't know, uh, the creative gene and the purpose of creation and creating for uh, selfish purposes, creation for the purposes of sharing with others, creation for just the purpose of creation and the joy that that brings you. 
no matter if anyone reads or listens to your creation. Because I find um, plenty of, of happiness and satisfaction in creation. Thank you.